16th-century soothsayer Michel de Nostradamus, better known as Nostradamus, wrote a series of predictions in rhyming verses. He published them in what has become his most famous book, The Prophecies. Believers claim his words accurately predicted catastrophic events like the rise of Hitler, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. It may have even predicted the recording of this podcast. In Quatrain 145, Nostradamus writes, A founder of sects, much trouble for the accuser. A beast in the theater prepares the scene and plot. The author ennobled by acts of older times. The world is confused by schismatic sects. By our interpretation, Nostradamus himself is the founder of sects who found himself in trouble for writing prophecies at a time when the Catholic Church did not look kindly on occultists. We are the beasts in the theater putting together a story for you. And the ennobled author refers to Nostradamus's many followers still translating his work and writing about its relevance to modern events. Of course, so far, We've only presented the views of Nostradamus's believers. The skeptics represent the confusing schismatic sects, and we've yet to give them a voice. Nostradamus may have been an all-powerful soothsayer, or just a clever hack. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals by Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode on Nostradamus, a 16th century French soothsayer whose predictions have remained relevant for the last 450 years or so. Last episode, we discussed Nostradamus's history and his possible education in Jewish mysticism and love for astrology. The premonitions that came from those teachings appeared to prove true within Nostradamus's lifetime. But the forecasts became even more impressive when they seemed to accurately predict disasters that occurred hundreds of years after Nostradamus's death. In this episode, we'll dive into Nostradamus's methods and attempt to unwind how we might have arrived at such uncannily accurate prophecies. In exploring his techniques, we'll also try to uncover something about Nostradamus's motivations. We may learn more than just how he divined our future, but also why. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science V.S. New season out on Spotify soon. 
Nostradamus encountered occult practices in his lifetime, but some believe that his Jewish roots may have given him his first taste of spirituality and showed him how humans can forge a connection with the divine. In part one, we covered how Nostradamus's early education came from his maternal great-grandfather. Both of Nostradamus's parents had Jewish ancestors. His paternal grandfather, Guy Gassonet, converted from Judaism to Christianity around 1455. Gassonet's descendants remained Christian, but the initial choice was probably made under duress. In the 1400s, the Catholic Church and French authorities forced Jews, like Gassonet, to make an impossible choice, convert or leave the region. So Nostradamus's formerly Jewish family converted to Catholicism. But that may not have stopped his great-grandfather from teaching him about their heritage. In addition to teaching Nostradamus Hebrew and the fundamentals of Jewish tradition, some have suggested that his maternal great-grandfather also educated him in the ancient mystic practice of Kabbalah. The practice has spanned many centuries and morphed over time, but most Kabbalah experts agree that it originated with the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. According to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel was struck by a vision as he traveled through Babylon in the early 6th century BCE. He wrote of his experience, saying, And there came a voice from above. Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne. And on the throne, high above, was a figure like that of a man. This divine throne that Ezekiel describes is God's chariot. Ezekiel believed he saw into the kingdom of heaven, where God himself reigned. Throughout the rest of Ezekiel's book, he discusses a number of gates that allowed entrance into God's house. In chapter 44, God showed Ezekiel one in particular. The passage reads, Only the prince himself may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the Lord. He must enter by way of the portico of the gateway and go out the same way. Ancient Jewish rabbis and spiritual leaders became fixated on Ezekiel's experience. They heavily contemplated God's chariot, which they understood as the link between the divine and human world. This explains why they are called mystics of Merkava, which is Hebrew for chariot. Moreover, through heavily meditating upon Ezekiel's experience, they too hoped to gain entrance to God's house and eat at his side. They wanted to see God for themselves, as Ezekiel had. Kabbalah was born out of an intense desire to forge a visual relationship with God. Instead of waiting for an ambiguous sign from God, Kabbalah sought a path directly to God that would allow practitioners the ability to lay eyes on him. A variety of different Jewish mystics built the practice of Kabbalah over several centuries. One of the earliest trailblazers was Rabbi Simeon ben Yohai, who lived during the 2nd century CE. According to ancient texts, Rabbi Simeon spent 13 years meditating on the Torah in a cave. In his concentrated mental state, he established the initial foundation for Kabbalistic practice. 
For centuries, practitioners built on Rabbi Simeon's methods, entering into deep meditative and hypnotic trances for hours on end. Through meditation, these mystics and rabbis believe they were able to achieve a vision of God like that of Ezekiel's. In their visions, they walked through the same gates Ezekiel did, following the path he laid out. Based on accounts of their visions, an angel stood guard at each gate. They were protectors of heaven, there to make sure that the unworthy could not pass through. But the rabbis didn't just have to prove themselves worthy. The mystics needed to memorize the names of each one of these divine spirits. Upon arrival at their gate, they recited the angel's honorific a specific number of times. If they measured up, then they could pass through the gate. Some mystics also carried special amulets designed to protect them from the powerful spirits. But it's unclear what specific consequences or repercussions they feared. If the rabbis managed to bypass the angels and pass through every gate, they arrived in the heavenly throne room. Once there, they could access God's thoughts, the culmination of Kabbalah. Some believe this intense meditative practice resembled Nostradamus's methods of generating prophecies, and they theorize that he may have first forged the practice under his great-grandfather's tutelage in his youth, as they both pursued a closer relationship with God. It's also notable that much of Kabbalah focused on reaching a visualization of God. Rather than feeling or hearing, mystics worked to see God the way Ezekiel did. And as we mentioned in the previous episode, Nostradamus is said to have worked to visually receive his prophecies by staring into a bowl of water. If Nostradamus's great-grandfather did instruct him in Kabbalah, he must have done it with immense caution. The practice was not without risk. According to these mystics, if an immodest, arrogant, or impure practitioner attempted Kabbalah, they could experience the opposite of the desired effect. One Talmudic legend recounted the story of four rabbis who decided to take part in the mystical meditation. One lost his mind. Another renounced Judaism. A third died. Only one entered in peace and left in peace. Because the connection Kabbalah forged was so powerful, the practice allegedly had to be strictly controlled. Those who might be unprepared or undeserving had to be protected. With that in mind, rabbis recorded the many sacred texts about Kabbalah in a variety of codes. One of the most widely known texts, the Zohar, was circulated by a 13th century Spanish Kabbalist named Mos de Leon, who claimed the text originated from Rabbi Simeon. Whether that's true or not, the author chose to use a variety of languages. The text is primarily in Aramaic, with a few words in medieval Portuguese and Spanish thrown in. And curiously, the Aramaic is not particularly polished. It appears as if the author was not proficient in the language. This has caused some scholars to wonder whether the writer or writers chose Aramaic, a famously arcane tongue, to make sure that only studious readers could decipher it. But the language isn't the only hurdle readers have to overcome. 
It's also filled with symbolism that many believe conceal its true meaning. Practitioners say that decoding the imagery of Kabbalah texts is an inspiring practice. As each symbol takes on new meaning, the reader feels that much closer to understanding the divine. A mysterious text written in cryptic language probably sounds familiar. Nostradamus employed a similar tactic in his most famous publication, The Prophecies. Perhaps Nostradamus drew from his experience with obscurely written text, all the reading he did about Kabbalah. The Prophecies was written in cryptic verse. Its poetic style of rhyming four-line verses, or quatrains, doesn't directly reveal any specific meaning at first. Instead, it forces its readers to decipher a mix of geological and astrological references, symbolism, and euphemisms to arrive at Nostradamus's intention. There are broad parallels between the practice and texts of Kabbalah and Nostradamus's techniques and writing, but historians mostly agree that Nostradamus was probably not exposed to Kabbalah as a child. Richard Smoley, author of The Essential Nostradamus, admits that it makes sense to examine Nostradamus's Jewish roots to understand the seer's fascination with mysticism. But there's no hard evidence that Nostradamus found inspiration from his Jewish ancestry or from Kabbalah. If anything, Nostradamus's work demonstrates a minor distaste for Judaism. He occasionally referred to Jewish people as the Saturnians. At the time, this likely would have been interpreted as a slight. Some believe that the planet Saturn ruled the Jewish people. Of course, Nostradamus's disregard for Judaism could have been a performance to throw the Catholic Church off the scent. If Nostradamus derisively wrote about Judaism in public, he could safely continue practicing Kabbalah in private, without fear of persecution. If that is the case, Nostradamus combined his different esoteric passions. Following this theory, he thus disguised an illegal practice, Kabbalah, with a more widely accepted one, astrology. Whether or not Kabbalah influenced Nostradamus, the seer used an array of mystic techniques to arrive at his prescient forecasts. Perhaps that's why Nostradamus remains the most prominent and successful seer of all time. No one knows his exact mystical recipe. Or, no one is willing to risk putting their mind through the same spiritual rigors that left some insane and others dead. Coming up, how the planets and stars factored into Nostradamus's visions. And now, back to the story. Some still debate whether Nostradamus used Kabbalah to help him receive his premonitions that seemingly predicted so many global catastrophes. But it's indisputable that he used intensive meditation and a variety of spiritual practices to arrive at his visions. And of all the occult methods he encountered in his life, astrology appears to have had the strongest, most consistent impact on his work. Astrology was a popular area of study in the Renaissance. 
Many during this time, including scholars, considered the movements of the stars and planets crucial to understanding the role humans played in the universe. Even the most prominent intellectuals believed that human moods and behaviors had a connection to the greater cosmos. So deciphering the actions of the planets also meant deciphering the actions of your fellow companions. One of the most simplistic ways astrologers applied planetary alignment to human behavior will probably sound familiar. It's remained one of the most popular applications of astrology to this day, the 12 Astrological Signs. For those who need a quick recap, the 12 astrological signs of the zodiac correspond to 12 constellations in the form of animals or creatures that were seen by ancient astronomers in predictable locations at different times of the year. Each date on the calendar corresponds to a constellation. So a person's birth date determines which constellation they're most affiliated with. These dates are still used for today's astrological signs, even though the precession of the equinoxes has moved the constellations to the east. Nostradamus made use of astrological signs and their purported meanings in his predictions. By determining a person's astrological sign, Nostradamus created a celestial proxy for that individual. By tracking the proper constellation and making certain calculations, Nostradamus could more precisely predict their actions. Take, for example, King Henry II, an Aries. When Nostradamus made his now-famous prophecy about the death of the French king, he likely used the movements of the Aries constellation to inform his writing. But there was much more to astrology than just using the zodiac to track the actions of one individual. Astrologers believed that celestial bodies closer to Earth, like other planets in our solar system and brighter stars, influenced significant events in our world. Renaissance thinker Henry Cornelius Agrippa summed up the relationship between the stars and man as follows. Seeing that there is a threefold world, elementary, celestial, and intellectual, and every inferior is governed by its superior and receiveth the influence of the virtues thereof. More simply, astrologers in Nostradamus's day believed that existence was divided into three spheres, humans and the earthly objects that surround us, the stars and planets, and an unseen but felt spiritual realm. The power of God was transmitted from this higher realm, the spiritual, down to humans in the lowest realm. Humans were therefore affected by the celestial, so analyzing the movement of objects in the cosmos could provide humans a window into the divine. Here's where prophecy enters the picture. By Nostradamus's time, astrologers knew enough about the orbits of the planets and the shifting of the constellations that they could predict their movements. If astrologers could predict the future movements of the celestial bodies, and those bodies controlled human behavior, then astrologers could theoretically predict human behavior. In order to determine the effects that planetary alignment had on people, Nostradamus and other astrologers studied human history. In particular, they noted the alignment of the cosmos during major moments of human angst. For example, 
the outbreaks of the bubonic plague or the Christian Crusades. They also recorded the planet's movements during major natural disasters, like volcanic eruptions and floods. They believed that the cosmos affected all matter on our planet. For example, say Venus was in Virgo and the moon was in its last quarter phase during an earthquake in 1402. When those cosmic conditions recurred months, years, or centuries later, Nostradamus could use his historical hindsight to predict that something similar might happen again. This strategy could explain how Nostradamus managed to so accurately predict the tragedy of 9-11. To refresh your memory, here's the quatrain that believers claim Nostradamus wrote about the 2001 terrorist attacks. Earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause tremors around the new city. Two great rocks will war for a long time. Then Arethusa will redden the river. In part one, we unpacked how each line had significance to the 9-11 attacks. But each line also aligns with another catastrophic event that occurred long before Nostradamus was born. The eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Author Peter Lemessurier has broken this argument down into its pieces. First, earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth is pretty straightforward, but it more clearly alludes to a volcanic eruption than it does the collapse of two skyscrapers. Next, the new city. Those words could refer to New York City, but there are plenty of city names that contain the word new. Lemessurier has argued that Nostradamus might have meant something even more literal, a metropolis whose name means new city. Like Naples, the name derives from the Greek word Neapolis, which directly translates to new city. Of course, Naples was right next to Mount Vesuvius when it erupted around the beginning of the 11th century. And the eruption coincided with an epically violent war. Right around that time, the Normans invaded southern Italy, which ended in their conquest of Sicily. Two great rocks were indeed at war, staining the rivers red with blood. The 9-11 attacks aren't the only famous Nostradamus prediction with a mirroring historical event. His premonition about King Henry II's death can be similarly deconstructed. In part one, we covered how this particular quatrain may have terrified Henry's wife, Queen Catherine de' Medici. The alleged death sentence read, The young lion will overcome the old one in a single combat on a military field. Inside a golden cage, his eyes will be pierced. Two wounds shall result from one blow, and afterwards he'll die a painful death. Catherine's husband had been interpreted as the old lion, but the verse could also have been about a different episode of mortal single combat, one that took place in 1314 between an English knight, Henry de Boone, and a Scottish king, Robert the Bruce. Scottish and British forces clashed in one of the many skirmishes over Scottish independence. Amid fighting, Henry found Robert on the battlefield. Fighting calmed around them as the two men squared off. Both were on horseback, but the English knight had a lance, while the Scottish king only had an axe. 
Therefore, Henry assumed he had an advantage over Robert. He charged. But Robert held his nerve as the galloping knight approached. At the last second, he yanked his horse aside and dodged the attack. Henry's lance went wide, and the king swung his axe. He landed a decisive blow to the knight's head. Henry's helmet and face split in two. The Scots cheered at their king's victory, but Robert was preoccupied. Apparently, the whack to the knight's helmet was so strong, it broke his axe. While his brethren celebrated, the king reportedly mourned the loss of his favorite weapon, saying, I have broken my good axe. Aside from the damaged weapon, victory was absolute. Within a day, the Scots chased off the humiliated English forces. Under this interpretation, the young lion didn't refer to a single combatant, but the entire Scottish army, seen as the rebellious juvenile force on the battlefield. As the prophecy stated, the young ultimately overtook the old. The decisive single combat featured a blow that pierced the eyes of the victim and caused two wounds. Both the knight and the axe suffered mortal injury. And although the knight's death may have been relatively swift, it must have been physically and emotionally painful. As he lay dying, he had to witness the demoralization his mistake caused his fellow Englishmen. The spiritual pain must have been acute. Many other quatrains in the prophecies can be traced back to events that occurred long before Nostradamus was born. If Nostradamus did draw as heavily from history as some believe, his famous prophecies aren't so much predictions of the future as vague descriptions of the past. Those vague depictions could still be impressively prescient, assuming the astrological positions during the two events align. Knowing how Nostradamus worked doesn't make the result any less effective. But unfortunately, there is no clear evidence of an astrological link between Mount Vesuvius's eruption and 9-11, or between King Henry's death and the Scottish victory. For skeptics, this indicates that astrology is a quack science. And by proxy, Nostradamus's prophecies are nonsense. However, believers like to point out that astrology was never an exact discipline. If anything, it's closer to an art. Planets have multiple meanings. For example, Venus represents both love and money. Interpreting which of these meanings is most relevant to a given situation is all part of the craft. Nostradamus himself admitted that astrology wasn't enough to generate a forecast with any specifics. He used the practice as a starting off point or as confirmation for his visions. In the preface of the prophecies, he writes about how one makes predictions. Through astrological calculations and insight achieved through meditation or reflection. He said, Astrology comes by infusion, clarifying the supernatural light for the person who predicts by means of the stars. Insight comes from a certain participation in the divine eternity. By this means, the prophet comes to judge what his divine spirit has given to him through God the Creator and his natural instigation. 
In these lines, Nostradamus references the work of the ancient Greek philosopher Iamblichus. While they may not specifically detail Nostradamus's own practices, they may hint at the spirit of what he was trying to achieve. Despite the unknowable nature of Nostradamus's work, it has been met with great success and awe for centuries. But as a set of predictions, you could easily call it a failure. Even if many of the prophecies proved accurate, there's no evidence that any of them ever prevented disaster. When a prediction can't be used to prevent or even prepare for the disasters it forecasts, it's hard to imagine what purpose it serves. But perhaps Nostradamus didn't write his prophecies to be useful. Maybe he just wrote them to be right. After all, being right is his main claim to fame and fortune. Coming up, why Nostradamus's modern followers might be fighting to keep his work relevant. And now, back to the story. Nostradamus used a combination of occult methods, including astrological observation and meditation, to arrive at his premonitions. But regardless of how accurate his predictions were, they never provided the seer with enough clarity to use his forecasts to prevent foretold disasters. The imprecise, flowery style of his writing makes it difficult to determine what future event he's forecasting until it has either arrived or already happened. This has caused skeptics to theorize that Nostradamus never intended to generate predictions of the future. They contend that he created vague forecasts that had a good chance of coming true because he already knew that history had a habit of repeating itself. Perhaps he simply used a bit of historical insight and some ambiguous language to stack the odds in his favor. Nostradamus skeptic and psychology professor Richard Wiseman explains this theory with a comparison to roulette. In its simplest form, a game of roulette consists of a player placing their bet on a red or black number. Then, a ball spins on the roulette wheel until it lands in a slot labeled with either, you guessed it, a red or black number. If the ball lands on the exact color and number the player bets on, they win. If it doesn't, the player loses. But the way Wiseman contends that Nostradamus plays the game, the seer gets to keep spinning the wheel. Because his predictions aren't tied down to a specific date, they can come true anytime and still be considered accurate. The more years that pass, the more likely each of his quatrains will predict an event. The way Wiseman sees it, Nostradamus isn't a seer. He's a gambler. And so maybe he was just abusing the human desire to want to know the future in order to win big. Now, we previously cited two of Nostradamus's prophecies that garnered attention before the foretold events occurred, which seemingly contradicts Wiseman's theory. But unpacking both premonitions a bit further reveals new insights. The first and most famous example is the death of King Henry II. In their lifetime, Queen Catherine feared Nostradamus's prediction of her husband's death. When her husband's death chillingly mirrored Nostradamus's words, it cemented Nostradamus's career as a soothsayer. 
But retellings of the story often conveniently leave out one detail. Nostradamus lied. In his correspondence, Nostradamus admitted that he'd actually composed a different quatrain about King Henry II's death. So the quatrain that everyone predicted was about Henry II wasn't about him at all. But Nostradamus just went along with it. He was happy to take credit for the stroke of luck. The forecast ended up coming true, but only as everyone else interpreted it, not as he predicted it. The second example is one we discussed at length in part one. Hitler's propaganda machine utilized one of Nostradamus's quatrain that predicted Hister, which the Nazis interpreted as Hitler, and his ferocious beasts crossing a river to wreak havoc. Just ahead of the German invasion of France, Hitler's forces printed the verse on pamphlets. Bombers released them from the sky, scattering the message all over the French countryside. The passage struck fear into the hearts of the French, who knew the Germans would have to presumably cross the Rhine River in order to enter their country. In fact, the messaging worked so well that when the Germans did invade, they found the streets of Paris virtually empty. The Germans rejoiced. Their use of Nostradamus was a success. In this case, the prophecy quite literally became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe Nostradamus accurately foresaw the German invasion, but it's more likely possible that German propagandists successfully used his words to make them come true. And nearly all of Nostradamus's most successful prophecies can be called into question. Consider the quatrains believed to forecast the rise of Hitler. The often cited line reads, the greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. Hister and Hitler sound similar, but they're not the same. Though their differences have been chalked up to a translation or printing error, there's one big flaw in that theory. Hister has its own meaning. According to historian Mark Corby, Hister is a Latin term that refers to the Lower Danube River, which mostly runs through Eastern Europe, from Germany to Austria, Hungary, Serbia, and Romania. In other words, the quatrain likely doesn't refer to Hitler at all. And there are moments in several wars, including World War I and World War II, when the line, the greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister, could apply. Shifting the meaning from an individual to a massive geographical area makes the line more sweeping. Some might say, a surefire bet. And the same could be said about the most recent prediction we explored in part one. Some believers have suggested that Nostradamus foresaw the coronavirus pandemic that ravaged the world beginning in late 2019. The quatrain in question reads, In the feeble lists, great calamity through America and Lombardy, the fire in the ship, plague and captivity, Mercury in Sagittarius, Saturn warning. Although several parts of these verses line up with the COVID-19 pandemic, they also align with almost every other plague in documented history. In the 1800s, it was cholera. In the late 1400s, it was syphilis. Fire in the ship is another evergreen prediction. 
Ships have been spreading plagues around the world since they started sailing. As for the astrological aspects of the prophecy, Mercury is in Sagittarius for at least three weeks every year, sometimes longer. It's a relatively narrow window of a year, sure, but given the hundreds of years it's been since Nostradamus first wrote the words, it had ample time to come true. As for Saturn warning, the phrase leaves a lot of room for interpretation. So much so that every movement Saturn has ever made could be understood as a harbinger of disaster. And skeptics argue that an easily interpreted presentation is the key to Nostradamus's success. Over time, the ability to interpret at will has only expanded. Today, there are many translations available of Nostradamus's work. Author Peter Lemessurier points out that 16th-century French reads very differently than modern French. An unfamiliarity with the idiosyncrasies of the antiquated language can result in the reader making leaps of judgment. And that's assuming the interpreter is working in good faith. Some skeptics believe that modern Nostradamus interpreters willingly distort what's on the page to force a prophecy so that it mirrors a current event. Take, for example, the quatrain we presented at the top of this episode. We conveniently interpreted it to suggest that Nostradamus foretold the creation of this episode. But we chose to infuse that meaning, even though we knew there was none. Why? It makes for a good story. And Le Measurer is on to us. He stands staunchly in the skeptic camp, saying, People start twisting the words. This is a standard method with Nostradamus. You twist the words or you twist the events, or indeed, you twist both. And this is what most of the current Nostradamus industry is based on. It's not about prophecies. It's about prophets. As author Richard Smoley says in the beginning of his book on the subject, sit down and use Nostradamus to prove that the world will come to an end. Of course, the world won't come to an end, but it won't make any difference. By then, you will have long since made your money, and your erroneous predictions will have been forgotten. Nostradamus and his followers don't remain relevant or rich because they predict the future. They remain relevant and rich because we want them to predict the future. We want to be assured that the future isn't out of our control. But if Nostradamus taught us anything, it's that we do have the ability to change the future, so long as we learn from the mistakes of our past. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Nostradamus, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Smoley's book, The Essential Nostradamus, and the Discovery Channel's documentary, Nostradamus, The Truth, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next Tuesday. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Connor Samston, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.